Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Islamic Studies. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Brian Catlos about his great new book, Muslims of Medieval Latin Christendom, circa 1050 to 1614, published with Cambridge University Press in 2014. In the current political climate, it might be easy to assume that Muslims in the West have always been viewed in a negative light. However, When we examine the historical relationship between Muslims and their non-Muslim neighbors, we find a much more complicated picture. In this rich book, Catlas provides the first comprehensive overview of Muslim minorities in Latin Christian lands during the Middle Ages. The book provides a narrative history of regional Muslim subjects in the Latin West, including Islamic Sicily, Al-Andalus, expansion in the Near East, the Muslim communities of medieval Hungary, and portraits of travelers, merchants, and slaves in Western Europe. Here we find that Muslims often had a great deal of agency in structuring the subject-ruler relationship due to their material and economic contributions to the local communities. The second half of the book explores thematic issues that were shared across Muslim communities of the Mediterranean world. The book surveys ideological, administrative, and practical matters, including Muslim concerns about legitimacy and assimilation, legal culture, and everyday social life in these multi-confessional communities. In our conversation, we discuss the reign of Christian Spains, Norman rule, the adoption of Arabo-Islamic culture, Morisco hybridity, Islam and Christian imagination, the role of Muslim women, and everyday public religious life, among many, many other things. However, we nearly scratched the surface on this one, so you will have to go out and pick up your own copy. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Brian Catlos about his great new book, Muslims of Medieval Latin Christendom, circa 1050 to 1614. How are you, Brian? Thanks for joining us. I'm great, Christian. Thanks a lot. It's, it's really great to have this opportunity. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful book, which we will get into great detail. It's really almost two or even three or four books that you've written here. It's a, it's a very large book, and uh, you're, you're doing a lot in it. And uh, I, I think you've achieved what you, you set out to do. So thank you. For, uh, for those of the, us that don't work on this area, uh, you've really provided a, a wealth of knowledge. So thank you. It's a wonderful book. Well, thank you. It kind of uh, it, it was it was much bigger than I thought it was going to be. So. <laughs> well, we we appreciate it. So traditionally, we begin these interviews with um with a little bit of background on you, and you you've written a, a lot on this before, and um, we, we were hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the study of Islam, or more generally the study of religions. You really you know in your your larger research trajectory, you cover a lot of issues. So 
Um, how did you get interested in the study of religions? Um, was there someone that was particularly formative in the way you approached the topic or your interest in this particular area? So it was kind of a couple different things led me to to work on on this field. I think I think I've I've always been uh, interested in religion as a as a phenomenon and as part of sort of the larger subject of of sort of uh, human human consciousness. And another one of my interests, uh, and I'm not sure why, uh, you know, maybe it's uh, growing up in uh, in a place like uh, Canada, which is such a, you know, such an immigrant country, and growing up the the child of of, uh, of immigrants, that uh, I was always interested also in uh, in identity, uh, ethnic identity, and in terms of the sort of my my more precisely my academic field, I guess uh, in my last year of uh, my BA at uh, the University of Toronto, I did a course uh, with a historian named Joseph Schatzmiller on uh, medieval magic. It was an independent study. And it was doing working on that course that really tuned me into the whole uh, the whole history of uh, Muslim, Christian, Jewish interaction in the Middle Ages, uh, particularly in that sense and sort of in the more sort of uh, cerebral and uh, you know intellectual realm. And then the, the sort of the next thing that happened was that uh, after I finished my, my BA, for various reasons, I decided to take a, to take a year off before continuing to graduate school. And uh, I had the idea that I would learn uh, Arabic and, and Hebrew. And so I, uh, I put on my knapsack and I ended up uh, in Syria, in, in Aleppo. And I did this sort of very uh, intensive uh, experience uh, in in Aleppo, in which basically I I learned quite quickly to you know have a pretty decent uh, reading knowledge of of classical Arabic, and then I went on to uh, uh, eventually to to Israel, and I I studied uh, Hebrew for uh, for a while there on uh, uh, one of these uh, kibbutz uh, ulpen programs. And it was really, I think, my it was my experience in in that part of the world, I think, that really uh, uh, brought home to me how interesting, uh, you know, the sort of the whole subject of ethno-religious identity is, and how uh, different it is in other parts of the world and other times from the way we think of it in in North America, where, you know, everything, where religion has been sort of compartmentalized, and we don't really, uh, most of us don't sort of think of our community as being formed by an ethno-religious community, which is also a kin community, uh, and which has sort of uh, very sort of long roots in the place where we live, and so, you know, when I when I got to first to Syria, which was uh, you know was a very interesting country, very ethno-religiously diverse, it I was sort of grappling with the way that that people thought of themselves and how they thought about their religious and ethnic identity, and that was what really. I think, you know, got me interested in uh, in this as an academic subject. And then, uh, you know, the sort of final piece in the puzzle was, as I learned that, uh, you know, of all places, uh, Spain uh, had a medieval past in which 
there were significant populations of, uh, well, in Islamic Spain, there were significant populations of Jews and Christians. And then in Christian Spain, there were significant populations of, of Jews and Muslims. And for me, that just seemed to be, you know, extremely interesting because, you know, I had been sort of brought up on a diet of the medieval history of Northern Europe, which is, which is quite a bit different. And, uh, so it all came together, plus uh, with the opportunity of uh, uh, doing research in and, and eventually now uh, living part-time in, in Spain. It was, uh, it was a combination that was, uh, that was too good to resist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Um, now, could you tell us a little bit about how this book began to emerge? It's, um, it's not your first book, and um, I think in the postscript or somewhere you kind of uh, – say in passing you're you're hoping to have like kind of a easy post tenure book where you kind of give an overview which you you certainly give us an overview but it's not your your kind of run of the mill overview uh you know 150 pages so could you talk a little bit about how you began to think about why this book needs to be written how I'm going to approach it how I'm going to structure it sure sure well I'll start at the very beginning with uh with with my my first book which was uh the, the first book I wrote, which was on the, the Muslim minorities of, of uh, the Crown of Aragon, so the medieval kingdom of Aragon and the counties of Catalonia in northern Spain from about 1050 to 1300, which was this really sort of, uh, you know, finely tuned technical uh, archival study, uh, sort of, you know, gave me a sort of a really solid uh, base uh, in terms of of one of these uh, communities of uh, of Muslims living under Christian rule in in Latin Christendom, and after I finished that book, uh, I started working on various other projects and and going back to to um, to uh, projects that I had worked on earlier, uh, which dealt with uh, religious minorities uh, elsewhere in the medieval Mediterranean. And this sort of got me thinking about uh, uh, issues surrounding uh, the whole minority-majority situation uh, in a more comparative sense. Uh, as for as for this book, where did I get the idea? Well, I think I got the idea because at one point, probably about six or seven years ago, I, I picked up, uh, you know, one one of the many books there are on uh, on the Jews of, of medieval Latin Christendom, and it just sort of came to me when I picked it up. I thought, well, geez, you know, no one has ever done that for the Muslims of medieval Latin Christendom. There's no one monograph that sort of comprehensively and coherently looks at the Muslim minority as a phenomenon. There was one book, an edited volume, very good one, I think it was edited by Powell called Muslims Under Latin Rule, but it was a collection of essays, so it was sort of a, you know, a kind of a piecemeal uh, thing written by some very good scholars, but, but not a, a single coherent and complete picture. And so I thought, geez, this, you know, sounds like a, a great idea for a book because so much has been done on these various Muslim communities, and there's been a little bit of comparative stuff, but nobody uh, so far has, has really put it all together. And so, uh, you know, as I said in the, in, the, in the back part of the book, in the postscript, uh, you know, I was also thinking, well, haha, you know, this will be, a, you know, a nice little synthesis I can, uh, I can knock out in, uh, <laughs> in a year and a half and, uh, 
and uh, and then go up for full. And uh, and so I uh, I proposed the book to uh, Cambridge University Press, and uh, I proposed it for they have a series called uh, the Cambridge Medieval Textbook Series. So I thought it would fit nicely with that, a sort of you know shortish little synthesis that kind of pulls everything together. And they agreed and gave me the contract. And then once I started reading and and writing it, much to uh, you know my consternation and delight, I found uh, out that the project was much more complicated than I had originally envisioned. That there was much more written than I had been aware of, and uh, and so uh, that's how I ended up uh, you know writing this this much longer and, and much different book than I originally uh, than I originally set out to do. Mm-hmm. Now, something that you're, uh, you talk very explicitly about both in the introduction um, but also kind of within each section uh, that you go through, you talk about your sources. Um, and it seems like some, some areas we have lots of sources, some we have very, very little. Um, can you just give us kind of an, uh, a, a, a brief summary of the types of sources that we can think about when we're thinking about Muslims under Latin rule? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. So, well, <clears throat> first of all, uh, the, the the Latin Christendom, in terms of of the Muslim communities, can be can be broken into broken into a couple of different zones. There's sort of uh, Iberia, the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, Portugal, Crown of Aragon, kind of thing, and then there's uh, southern Italy and Ephrygia, uh, and then there is the Crusader East. And so each of those regions has uh, a, a different history uh, of these communities, and also, uh, for various reasons, uh, uh, a different set of of sources that can be used to to sort of uncover uh, their history. So you know the thing is when you're when you're studying something like this this community. Uh, or these communities, really, because they were, you know, they were, they were, they were different and differentiated. But when one studies communities like this, that even during their time were marginalized, right, and then were eventually, you know, disappeared, uh, converted, uh, or were expelled, and therefore there was no sort of, there was very little institutional interest or impetus uh, to maintain. Uh, records about them, uh, it can be quite challenging in terms of uh, finding source material. Of the different regions I'm talking, I, I mentioned, uh, each one has has different characteristics in terms of the sources. Uh, Spain is, you know, by far has the most abundant uh, source material, particularly uh, uh, what was the uh, medieval crown of Aragon. Which, as I said, is that northern, northeastern part of Spain, Kingdom of Aragon, Catalonia, uh, Valencia, and the Balearic Islands. And because of because the Crown of Aragon happened for a number of reasons to develop sophisticated chancery practices very early, uh, you know, really by the mid 13th century, and because just coincidentally, uh, the royal records, most of the royal records of the Crown of Aragon, have survived. And because the Muslim communities here, most of them had a, a direct uh, judicial and fiscal link to the monarchy, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of archival material 
which is at historian's disposal for studying the Muslim minorities in the Crown of Aragon, right from uh, uh, you know from the 11th century uh, right through to to the 16th and early 17th century and the expulsion of the Moriscos, and it's not just a, a question of quantity. There's also an immense variety of material. There are, you know, administrative documents, court records, royal letters, uh, trial transcripts. It's it's just incredible. It's 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 practically inexhaustible. Elsewhere in in you know the Iberian Peninsula, the the situation for sources is pretty good as well. Although uh, in Castile and Portugal, uh, the chanceries developed a lot slower, so you don't really get a lot of records before the 15th century. And then we get into in southern Italy and Ifriqia, uh, you have a kind of different set of records. There are there are administrative records that survive. There are uh, there are uh, chronicles. There is literature produced by Muslims uh, living under uh, Latin rule, which is not really so much the case in the Iberian Peninsula. In southern Italy, uh, the rulers there, for various reasons, cultivated uh, an elite class of, uh, of subject Muslims, and so there was a, a different sort of cultural production happening there. And then finally, uh, sources are much thinner on the ground in you know what was the uh, what was the Latin East, and so you know we're really looking at uh, you know uh, records of uh, of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which are which are quite sparse of the military orders, uh, chronicles, and then what's really interesting, and you know hopefully uh, uh, these records will will continue to survive given the upheavals the region is going through, but it seems pretty clear that there is untapped material probably in archives in places like Damascus that relates to the experience of uh, subject Muslims under, under Latin rule in, in, in the Crusader East. And, and a little bit of that has been brought to light and it's, it's really quite, quite fascinating material. But again, this is, this is, you know, sort of uh, on the ground work that really remains to be done by, uh, by, you know, ambitious and, and talented uh, uh, young historians who may want to do that. Um, now the the first half of the book is uh, somewhat of a historical narrative you walk us through various uh, geographies and time periods um, and as I said in the beginning you really you cover a lot and we're, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface here um, but for those people that that don't you know perhaps they might have heard of kind of the the, the golden age of, of Muslim Spain um, they might not know about after that so can you um, you, you start in the 11th century kind of can you kind of walk us through what's what's happening in the 11th century? How, how does uh, Christian rule in these areas kind of progress in their relationship with Muslims throughout the next few centuries? Give give us an idea of what's going on there. Sure. So what we have in in the the middle 11th century is this situation where uh, you know in the middle 11th century really the the sort of the the, the civilized part of of the West, as it were, in the developed part of the West, was the Byzantine and Islamic Mediterranean. Right. This is where you know everything was happening in terms of culture, technology, economy, etc. And you know, Latin Europe, Latin Christian Europe, 
the north was really a peripheral area, much like uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa was or part of, you know, parts of Central Asia. And what happened was that around, you know, from about the mid-10th century, each of these areas, in fact, Central Asia, uh, uh, the Latin north of Europe, and the uh, the sub-Saharan fringe in Africa, as a consequence of uh, various factors, but including the beginnings of contact with the with the Mediterranean world, began to sort of develop more. And as they developed more, they sought to engage themselves with this dynamic world of the Mediterranean, as you know barbarians do with empires, as it were. And <clears throat> So what we have is a situation where uh, we have, in the Latin North, we have a, a growing population, uh, a militarized culture, which is developing uh, precisely at the time that the Mediterranean is going through a sort of um, period of, of fragmentation and political disarray with the, uh, you know, with the sort of, with the declaration of the, of the, rival caliphates to the Abbasids, the declaration of the uh, Umayyad Caliphate in uh, Al-Andalus and the Fatimid Caliphate in Ifriqiya and then in, in Egypt in the, in the 10th century. So we have a situation where the Mediterranean is in this process of upheaval and fragmentation, and we have this strong or dynamic more primitive peripheral people in the north, and these are the Latin Christians who come down and take advantage of the disarray of the Byzanto-Islamic Mediterranean in order to uh, kind of insert themselves into it and try to conquer bits of it. So what happens is that as they come into the Mediterranean, they find that they're coming into a wealthy, complex sophisticated world in which in order to dominate it and in order to enjoy the benefits of that domination, which is to say extract wealth from the territory that they've conquered, what they have to do is as much as possible leave the economic infrastructure intact. And so this is at bottom why when the Christian powers across the, uh, you know, the sort of frontier of Latin Christendom. And the only exception to this, partial exception to this, is, is uh, the Crusader states in the East, which had sort of a, a more violent sort of beginning. But in each of these cases, the rulers and the powers that be realize that if they want these conquests to work, what they have to do is they have to come to arrangements with the people that they've conquered. And so as Latin Christians came down into the, into the Islamic Mediterranean, the idea at this time in, in the 12th and 11th century was, was not to, you know, expel the Muslims or kill the Muslims. What it was was it was a matter of displacing the Islamic elite, particularly the, the military elite and the political elite, and leaving the sort of structure of society and the economy in place and becoming the people who benefited from that wealth. And what that did was it, it set up a dynamic in which Christian rulers were prepared to integrate 
Muslims as legitimate, although second-class subjects, as it were, within Christian kingdoms and principalities. It's kind of really, you know, the mirror image of what happened with the Islamic conquest. You know, it's a very similar process. Now, from the point of view of, of these Muslims, at least, you know, apart from the, you know, the, the Muslim elite uh, who was pushed out by the conquered Christians, sort of everyday Muslims, as it were, from their point of view, you know, it wasn't necessarily so important what the identity of their sovereign was, as long as their sovereign could guarantee peace and stability and prosperity, which is precisely what had been lacking in the, genera- the couple generations that preceded the beginnings of the Christian conquest. So it was really a process, I mean, it was a violent uh, process of conquest on the one hand, but it was also uh, a process of mutual legitimization uh, with the Christian rulers, legitimizing their Muslim subjects and incorporating them into their developing political structures and from the point of the Muslim subjects accommodating uh, non-Muslim rulers and sort of carving themselves a space within these new Christian societies in which they could have some protagonism, uh, you know, and some uh, control over their own destiny. Now, um, like I said, we're, we're kind of jumping around here a little bit, but um, in uh, you have a whole chapter focusing on uh, the Near East, uh, and I'm wondering if you could give us an impression of how was uh, Christian expansion in the Near East different from the rest of the Mediterranean? This is one of the things that you say is uh, one of the big differences here from the picture you just painted for us. Sure. Well, one thing is that, I mean, the Eastern Mediterranean, because it was the Holy Land, because it was, uh, because Jerusalem was there, really had a, had a sort of uh, a, uh, an ideological dimension uh, that the rest of the conquests didn't have. And, you know, particularly because of the wave of millenarianism that was sweeping Latin Christendom at the time, and that sort of, uh, you know, uh, enabled, was, was the sort of spark, perhaps, that, uh, that, that kicked off the Crusades. And so, you know, you have the Latin entree into the, into the Holy Land, and it's, it's extremely violent, you know, and there's this, there is this sort of dimension of, uh, of, uh, ethnic cleansing, as it were. I mean, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of massacring, indiscriminate massacring, of of people. Uh, it's not just at the outset a case of of uh, displacing the elite and letting the ordinary Muslims sort of be. It's really a, uh, you know, it was really seen as as sort of uh, cleansing and resanctifying uh, the Holy Land and particularly Jerusalem that had been polluted by the Muslim presence. Right. So after the, the Muslims, uh, after the Christians, sorry, uh, conquered Jerusalem, uh, you know, they, they sort of paused for three days in their looting to round up, uh, you know, Muslim civilians and, and kind of systematically, you know, put them to death, uh, you know, Deuteronomy style. And so that's that's really a different sort of dynamic uh, than what we see in the rest of, of the expansion. But 
a couple of things have to be said about that too, is that often people make, uh, you know, they sort of characterize the Crusaders as, as uh, you know, uh, these Northern Europeans who came to the Holy Land who are quite primitive and, and really didn't know what to expect and, you know, had never seen a Muslim before, uh, you know, uh, and who, you know, were not sort of equipped to deal with this sort of uh, situation. But one has to remember that actually, you know, a good number of the people who were involved in the Crusades, particularly uh, the Normans, uh, who were the Normans of southern Italy, uh, actually had extensive experience in the Near East, uh, dealing with uh, Byzantines and dealing with Muslims and dealing with that whole, you know, ethnically, religiously diverse and politically fragmented environment. So, you know, right from the beginning, there was also that sort of pragmatic element in the Crusades. And, you know, what's interesting is pretty soon after, I mean, you know, more or less immediately after that, that, you know, that first sort of spasm of violence that characterized uh, uh, the first crusade, the, the Franks in the Near East settled down into, uh, you know, a series of relationships of accommodation, both on a political level, uh, on an international level, and on a domestic level, because they discovered that, you know, if they mistreated their Muslim subjects, their Muslim subjects were going to leave. And if you're, if you're a lord, uh, you know, if you don't have any peasants, then you're not going to be a successful lord. So there's this sort of the practicalities, the issues that have to do with the practicalities of, of, of ruling people and ruling territory, keeping it productive, sort of mitigated towards accommodation, even in, in the Crusaderies. Now, um, another chapter that, you, that I found really fascinating, because it was not things that I've thought about much, um, you've, you focus on some Muslim communities that we might, many people might not even think of. So, um, and you, you give us a, a couple of snapshots. Um, one is the community in medieval Hungary. Um, I, I didn't even know there was a community that was there. And, uh, I, I guess from the, the way you paint the picture of the sources, uh, perhaps I, I'm not alone, but what, what was going on there and who, who, who were these Muslims? Well, Hungary is an interesting case because uh, in the other territories that that uh, that I look at in the book, you have uh, a sort of a narrative which involves uh, Christians conquering established Muslim societies that identified as you know uh, uh, culturally Arabic. Uh, one might say normative, developed Muslim groups, right? And what you have in Hungary is, first of all, you have this sort of this morass of of, of nomadic peoples that are that are in Hungary in in the 10th century. Some of which, uh, probably most of which, are pagan, and some of which maybe in some way uh, identify as Muslims and others who in some way identify as Christians. But, you know, these are all nomads. And so it's, it's kind of, it's kind of blurry. And then uh, around the year 1000, uh, the sort of the most powerful elements within this, this amorphous nomadic society convert to Christianity. 
and become the Hungarians, the Magyar. And leaving, uh, you know, significant uh, groups of, of Muslims within Hungary as well. And these Muslim groups were integrated into the sort of the structure of Hungary uh, as Hungary emerged as a kingdom because of their military vocation. And so they were extremely useful as soldiers to, uh, to the, uh, you know, to the, to the ruling Christian classes. And this is one of the ways in which, uh, you know, immigrants or outsiders can make themselves useful is by serving in a military role. I think even today in the United States, one of the fast tracks to citizenship residency is to serve in the armed forces. Well, so this was a sort of similar, similar situation. Now, the thing was the, the community wasn't very big. Uh, they didn't have a sort of very much uh, high culture, and they disappeared pretty early. So uh, really by, you know, by around uh, 1300, uh, they're, they're gone. They've disappeared. And so there's very little left in terms of, uh, in terms of records. The problem was that you know, the, the sort of this role that they filled in Hungarian society, this military role, was also a role that other groups could fill. And so kind of when we got to the point that there were enough Christian groups who could fulfill the military role in Hungary, as it were, then the sort of the justification for the existence of this Islamic minority was no longer there, and therefore they became susceptible to the pressures of uh, missionizing uh, or, you know, sort of religiously chauvinistic pressures, uh, you know, uh, the sort of uh, the expansionary element of the church, etc., which is really, you know, this is really the story of, I think, uh, the Muslims across Latin Christendom and, you know, minority populations in the Middle Ages in general. Basically, while a minority population uh, served a purpose in the host society in which they lived, which was unique enough or important enough that it outweighed the sort of ideological downside of having infidels living within your midst, then they survived. When, when the balance tilted against them, when there was too much competition from people within the majority society, or when whatever little niche that the minority kind of occupied within the host society disappeared, then that minority became vulnerable and, uh, you know, dollars to donuts, they would be gone pretty soon. <laughs> Um, another really interesting uh, section that you have is, I, I guess we could call them temporary visitors, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, but basically, you give us uh, some images of Muslims that end up in what we now think of of Western Europe. Uh, so, how how did Muslims end up here? What were they doing? And uh, per, perhaps, uh, you know, why why were they there? Well, you know, a lot has been been made by you know uh, 
by some scholars about uh, you know the sort of uh, the fact that one doesn't find many uh, many Muslim travelers in uh, medieval Christian Europe, and uh, you know uh, some historians have gone so far as uh, as to hold this up as some sort of indication that you know. Uh, Muslims weren't as, you know, as adventurous or intellectually curious or entrepreneurial as uh, as Christians were at the time. And, uh, you know, that's, of course, ridiculous because, you know, Muslims were, you know, exploring, colonizing and trading in its places uh, in places as diverse as, you know, Malaysia, the Far East, Sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know the the reason why Muslims were not going to uh, medieval Latin Europe in large numbers was because it was first of all it was not a very hospitable place uh, for them, and secondly because you know really there was no reason to go in terms of in terms of uh, the sort of trade relationships between Latin Europe and the Islamic Mediterranean. The Latins were coming to the Islamic Mediterranean. So, you know, there was no there was no advantage to Muslim merchants sort of trying to infiltrate Latin Europe. So there wasn't a lot of traffic. What traffic there was was essentially tied to two things. One was uh, slavery. Uh, there was a huge thriving slave trade in medieval Europe, which was until really, uh, let's say, the the first decades of the 14th century, maybe even the, the mid-14th century, was made up almost entirely of, of Muslim slaves. And so there were slaves being distributed, particularly in the Christian Mediterranean, in huge numbers. So that's one group, and that's a group that's very hard to get a handle on, because, uh, you know, uh, generally speaking, the only records we have for them are, are the sort of point-of-sale records. And then, then these these people sort of disappear into you know this sort of into historical obscurity, naturally because you know because they're slaves living in isolation. The other travelers that you get, the sort of the more interesting ones in some way, uh, and the more surprising ones, are elite subject Muslims who are tied to uh, royal courts. In, uh, in the Christian Mediterranean. So, for example, uh, the Kingdom of Navarre, which was in the north of Spain and, and partly in what's now the north of France, had quite a significant Muslim population. And one of the sort of niches that this Muslim population uh, occupied was uh, they were uh, very good at making arms, they were good at artillery, and at uh, sort of providing military infrastructure. Uh, uh, building tents, pontoon bridges, this kind of thing. And so some of these people uh, ended up sort of going on loan from the King of Navarre to the King of France as part of, you know, arrangements of, of, of military exchange. So that's another sort of way that, you know, and it's, it's, it's something that, that, you know, has, has more or less been gone largely unnoticed by historians, but we find, uh, you know, records of, you know, these sort of stray Muslims who wind up, you know, living for several years in, you know, in the north of France or, you know, uh, or in Germany or something like that before going home. And it's, it's kind of intriguing because, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, again, it's something that we, that we don't imagine when we imagine medieval Europe. 
another topic that uh, you kind of wrap up the historical section of the book with um, is the issue of this this community called the Moriscos. Um, now these these people are super interesting for anyone who's interested in religious identity. Um, give give us an idea of, of, of what this community is all about. Why there's a debate about them. Um, yeah, the the you know the Morisco community is 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 you're right. It's it's just uh, it's a it's a fascinating subject and uh, one that a lot of really good work is being done on right now, and which is really uh, I think pushing pushing our understanding of what comprises uh, a religious community and and really what comprises a religion. So uh, uh, in medieval Iberia, in the Iberian Peninsula, in, in you know Spain, we had uh, quite a large Muslim population, which lasted uh, you know right through the Middle Ages into uh, into the 1500s, and uh, for various reasons, which are you know probably too complex to get into right now, there was pressure on them after uh, about the year 1500 to convert to Christianity. And they were converted uh, by fiat, by legal decree, in most of them uh, around 1525. And so more or less overnight, they were forced to become Christians. The way that the decree was uh, was presented, it was presented, you know, something along the lines of uh, this of the uh, the decree that was presented to the Jews of Spain in 1492, which was convert or leave. But the fact was, these Muslims were so economically important that, uh, you know, the clause about being able to leave was sort of a fiction. You know, they were they were they were given such a short time. And uh, the conditions that they had to meet in order to be able to leave, should they even want to leave, you know, their their homes, were so strict that it was virtually impossible. So it was kind of overnight. We had say half a million people forced to convert officially to Christianity. Okay, so you can imagine, uh, uh, you know, not very many of them would have wanted to. And uh, it was from the beginning something of a something of a legal fiction. Now, on the religious level, it's kind of interesting because, you know, in Spain, Christians and Muslims had been now living together under Christian rule for for a couple of hundred years, and acculturation and syncretism is is you know is pretty unavoidable when you have people living in such close uh, proximity and engaging in, uh, you know, in a a sort of very intense social relationships. And in some ways, in some ways, Christianity and Islam were sort of growing together. One of the ways that we can see that in is, uh, is the development of Marianism. And, uh, you know, in Catholic theology and Catholic religious practice at this time, Mary was becoming, you know, increasingly important. And the reasons for that are obvious. Mary is the mother of God in Catholic theology. Of course, in in Islam, you know, Mary is also important. She's actually the only woman mentioned by name in the Quran. And Muslims in uh, Christian-ruled medieval Spain also became increasingly invested in 
in Marianism. And what developed was a sort of a religious identity that was, you know, perhaps, you know, neither entirely Christian nor entirely Muslim. And one that sort of, at least in formal terms, tried to skirt around the most contentious sort of issues of uh, theological issues of Christianity and Islam. And so what the situation ended up being was you had this sort of this community that was living in Spain under Christian rule that was nominally Christian, that perhaps followed some Christian practices, but who in many very important ways continued to consider themselves Muslims. And this was particularly so in the countryside, away from the cities, where people continue to speak Arabic. And, and although, uh, you know, the law said that they were Christian, uh, they could still, you know, quite openly uh, practice uh, Islamic religion and Islamic rights, often with the collusion and the support of, of their Christian lords. Thanks, Brian. This is great. Um, now, like I said, there's the first half of the book really goes into such great detail, um, and it, we would have been happy with that. So thank you, Brian. Uh, the second half almost is a whole entire another book. Um, so since we're just we've, we've been talking for a while, and I want to take up your whole day. Um, perhaps you could talk about um, how you structured this section, the second half of the book. Uh, you break it down into thought, word, and deed, um, and perhaps tell us what you're trying to achieve in each of those sections. What, what were you trying to present us? Sure, sure. Well, I think that you know there 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 are two parts to this to this story of of, of these Muslims <laughs> under Christian rule, and, and one is is that first part, which is a series of sort of uh, local or or regional uh, narratives. Uh, that address the particularities of each of these different Muslim communities. But I think it's also important to understand uh, this sort of engagement between these Muslim and Christian societies uh, as a whole. And so the second part of the book really looks at that, and it looks at, at the commonalities of, uh, of Muslims experience as minorities in, in Latin Christendom. And the reason I broke it up into those three sections, they really coincide with, uh, as, as you mentioned, their thought, word, and deed, which are, uh, of course, uh, you know, Augustine's uh, three types of sin, the, the sort of the, the, the joke, as it were, being that, you know, from from the point of view of a, of a sort of hardline ideologue, either a Christian ideologue or a Muslim ideologue, <laughs> This was really a situation which should not be happening, right? Uh, you know, from the Muslim perspective, and Muslim jurists were pretty clear on this, Muslims should not be living under infidel rule, right? And, you know, the Christian position wasn't that much different, really. Christianity was not, you know, Christian ideologues were not that comfortable with having large populations of, of infidels, uh, whether Jews or Muslims, living within Christian society. So, you know, the whole situation was kind of loaded. You know, even so, it was able to last for, for centuries and centuries. And so thought, 
the, the first chapter of that section, looks at the sort of formal approaches that both Muslims and Christians took in imagining uh, their relationships with one another as religious communities. So things like uh, uh, polemics, things like uh, how Islamic law looked at the situation of these minorities, how, how uh, you know, Christian law uh, evolved in terms of religious minorities. The next chapter, which is called Bird, has to do with, with not so much law in the theoretical sense, but law in the applied sense. And it looks at the uh, the particular law codes that that Muslims lived under, what sort of limitations they were subject to, what uh, what the structure of the administration of their communities was, how that tied in with uh, the administration of Christian communities, what their relationship to royal and seigneurial power was, and so on. And then finally, uh, the last chapter, Deed, looks at the social and economic realities, as it were, of Muslim life under Christian rule. And for me, this is really the most interesting section because it shows that, you know, the, the chapters on thought and word really, really deal with boundaries and how boundaries are set up and articulated and how people try to maintain them. And the last chapter, Deed, which looks at what people were really doing, shows, you know, just how ephemeral those boundaries were and how impossible it was to separate these communities when they were living together. You know, so, you know, on the one hand, you had, you had, uh, you know, kings and clergymen passing laws saying that, you know, Muslims could not uh, act as physicians uh, for Christian patients. And at the same time, the same kings and the same, uh, the same you know, bishops who were passing these laws were themselves employing Muslim physicians, for example. So, you know, it's, it's I think, in the blurriness of these relations that the richness and complexity of the experience of, of, of these communities really comes out. The, the last chapter that deals with kind of everyday social life, I, I was really surprised with the, the, the detail you were able to go into. Um, perhaps you, you scared me into thinking there were not enough sources to give this kind of rich picture. Um, and one of the things I really am glad you addressed in the book, um, both kind of specifically on its own, but also th- throughout the book, is the role of Muslim women. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what kind of relationships we find Muslim women in in, in Latin Christendom, um, perhaps what everyday life was like uh, in these kind of multi-confessional communities for Muslim women. Yeah, well, you know, this is this is really a, another one of these uh, you know fascinating subjects and one that's 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 generally really difficult to get at because. Uh, you know, subject Muslim women living, you know, in Latin Christendom. That's you're, you're talking about a group that's that's doubly or or triply marginalized. Uh, you know, one they're Muslims living under Christian rule. One they're women living in a man's world. And you know, uh, thirdly, uh, you know, they tend not to be uh, uh, upper class. So in terms of historiography and the availability of sources, I mean, they are way out there. But, uh, you know, fortunately, 
And most of our evidence in this respect really comes from uh, from late medieval and uh, early modern Spain, where the uh, where the the archival documentation just completely uh, blossoms. And, you know, because of, you know, these terrible institutions like the Inquisition, we have, you know, we have uh, records and documentation which which really get into uh, the lives of, of ordinary people and into the thoughts of ordinary people. And this is most clearly where the role of women uh, and the sort of the world of women comes out in these sources. And, uh, you know, what do we see? We see, you know, much like the much like the the, the men, Muslim women who are, you know, on the one hand, uh, extremely integrated into the larger society in which they live and who are in contact uh, you know, often quite, uh, you know, intimate uh, contact with, uh, with Christian women and Jewish women, for example. And on the other hand, we find that uh, as the sort of, as the pressures grew against the, the, the Muslim and Morisco communities, it was in many cases, uh, you know, uh, Muslim women who were really, you know, holding the line on on Islamic identity, and who were really the uh, you know the anchors of uh, of uh, you know of 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 religion and and of community. Uh, when one looks at a place like the Kingdom of Valencia, which was had a very charged atmosphere of uh, you know of, of Muslim Christian tension, uh, you know Morisco women were. You know, extremely active in in resisting uh, the Inquisition, in uh, you know, in uh, trying to keep safe uh, uh, copies of the Quran and other religious books when these were being uh, confiscated, and who were often, it seems, quite you know, adept at deploying all sorts of strategies for for defeating the uh, the Inquisition's uh, attempts to sort of to you know to 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 bring them to book or to uh, you know to find them guilty. So uh, you know it's quite uh, there's there, there's a lot there that that is that can be ferreted out from the sources. There were also we find you know through court records and through tax records there were often uh, you know Muslim women who were who were very wealthy and. Uh, who uh, you know were very influential, but because because of their gender, they didn't tend to get well. They they didn't get appointed to you know official posts. You know, it's very difficult to detect them in the historical record, and it's often only by chance through you know unique or nearly unique documents that have survived that we can get a picture of these lives of of, of the lives of some of these women and realize that that there were many more like them who would have had the same opportunities. Great. Brian, is there anything that you'd like to say about the book that we didn't really get to cover here? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, but (laughs) perhaps something you want to wrap up with. Hmm. What would I want to wrap up with? Well, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, Obviously, this is a book about, uh, you know, Muslim minorities living under uh, Christian rule in the Middle Ages, under Latin Christian rule. So it's a, it's a book that looks at some very specific communities and some very specific things that are happening. But 
you know, really what I, what I, what I hope also the book does. And, you know, this is something that I get to more in the, in the conclusion or the, or the postscript is that what I, what I hope it is, it's, it's also a book that, that really drives home how, how complex these relationships are and how, however important religious identity may be and religious community might be, it's only one aspect of, of individuals' identity. It's only one sort of dimension uh, of our identity and that, and that as complex individuals, as we move through our lives in diverse societies that, you know, at different times and in different contexts and in different moments, we think of ourselves in different ways and we present ourselves in different ways. And, you know, one of the reasons why these communities were so durable was because so much of, uh, of Muslim Christian Jewish relations at this time had absolutely nothing to do with religious identity or even religious community because people were interacting in ways in which they could, you know, sort of park their religious identity or even agree to disagree. Uh, one of the most interesting things, I think, is how, you know, in these societies uh, where you had Christians, Muslims, and Jews, in order for them to work in terms of legal administration, basically the members of each group had to come to the realization that even though they considered the others to be wrong, they had to concede to them that their intentions were good. And this is what allowed, for example, Muslims and Jews or Muslims and Christians or Christians and Jews to make legal contracts and arrangements with one another. Because they, at bottom, they didn't consider each other's religions which are the foundations of their morality as legitimate, but they had to concede that at least the other parties meant well. And I think that's what really uh, provided the foundation or provided the environment for, uh, for this diversity to be able to be sustained. You know, it wasn't the case of people, uh, you know, vilifying and stereotyping each other. Uh, once a society gets to that point, it, uh, it breaks down. And, you know, I think, I think that's probably something that we can, you know, that we can take, take to today and, uh, you know, give us some pause for thought. Hmm. Now you're, you're a very busy man and, uh, <laughs> you have a book, uh, perhaps that's coming out right now or <laughs> very shortly. Uh, what, what other kind of things, uh, do you have coming out in the future? Are you perhaps working on now? People certainly, uh, I think we'll, we'll want to know what else they can read of yours. Sure, sure. I've got a book coming out in uh, in August, uh, uh, which I'm very excited about. It's called uh, Infidel Kings and Unholy Warriors, uh, Power, Faith, and Violence in the Age of Crusade and Jihad. And basically it's a counter history of uh, the Mediterranean and uh, in the era from, say, uh, 1050 to 1300. And it's a fun book because it looks at... Uh, uh, it kind of looks at this world, complex world of the Mediterranean through uh, little biographies, as it were, or biographical sketches of, uh, of, of characters who, who completely blur 
or uh, you know destroy the sort of this paradigm of, of the rigid separation of, of Christian Muslim and Jewish societies in both the Islamic world and the Christian world so so that's coming out uh, in August with the Ferris Stress and Giroux and then uh, two other projects I'm working on I'm working on a uh, a uh, medieval textbook with, uh, along with uh, Tom Berman, who's at uh, Tennessee, Knoxville, and Mark Meyerson in Toronto. And what we're doing is we're, uh, for Bedford St. Martin's, we're putting together a textbook of, of medieval history, which instead of being centered on Northern Europe, is centered on the Mediterranean and really incorporates you know, what we see as the history of the West, which is the Islamic world and the Christian world sort of developing together through the Middle Ages. And then finally, uh, a book that I hope to finish, you know, if I can, if I can manage in, in the next year, is a book called um, Paradoxes of Plurality, uh, Ethno-Religious Diversity in the Medieval Mediterranean and Beyond. And that's kind of more of a, more of a, a theoretical book. What it does is it presents... Uh, uh, this model that I've developed for uh, for thinking about and for accounting for ethno-religious relations in a way that neither tends towards the clash of civilizations thesis nor towards uh, this sort of nostalgic view of, of happy, uh, you know, convivencia. It's it's a I think it's a way of of understanding ethno-religious diversity and ethno-religious relations in a way that both accounts for, uh, you know, acculturation and accommodation as well as, as well as conflict. So those are, those are basically my, my main projects right now. Well, Brian, thank you very much for, for speaking with us. It was a pleasure and perhaps you will, uh, you could join us again in the future. Well, thanks. I'd be happy to. Uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening. That was my conversation with Brian Katloss about Muslims of medieval Latin Christendom, circa 1050 to 1614, published with Cambridge University Press in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.